Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters and joining me today is special guest David Liddle, founder of online investment advisory service Ipso Facto Investor. Today we're discussing how to find the right investment strategy. Investors dedicate a lot of time to trying to find the best shares or funds, but if they don't have a coherent strategy or portfolio construction, a random selection of investments won't necessarily achieve their goals. David, if an investor doesn't have an investment strategy, what are the first steps for determining the right one? Well, Leonora, I think the starting point for investment is always to set an objective. What are you investing for? This may seem pretty obvious, but it's also important. The objective can be pretty vague. You may just want to build up a general pot of money for some indeterminate point in the future. Or it may be very specific, saving for a deposit on a house in five years' time, for example. You may want to generate income now, or you may be saving for retirement within a pension fund, or to complement your pension. At the same time as setting the objective, you need to review your circumstances, What is my income, prospects, existing wealth, age, etc.? The combination of setting your objective with an audit of your personal circumstances can then be used to determine your asset allocation and investment strategy, along with an assessment of your risk as appetite. That's quite an important point because I think a lot of people underestimate or overestimate their risk appetite. How do you determine what your risk appetite is when you're choosing an investment strategy? This is an interesting one, Leonora, because I'm not sure that the financial services industry has got this quite right. And that, that is partly because it is difficult to do. Risk appetite is really about how much tolerance how much we are prepared to put up with a significant loss in value of our investments. But I think most people, when asked this question, would have a fairly low tolerance. But that may not always be the right answer. I don't think that risk appetite can be determined in isolation. It needs to involve your objective, your current circumstances, and it may change over time. In my view, an assessment of risk appetite also should involve a discussion around the value and risk of each asset class at the time that investment strategy is being determined. For example, traditionally, someone who said they had a low risk appetite would be directed towards bonds. A model portfolio which is used by some financial advisors to asset allocate for their clients at the beginning of this year, for a cautious investor, had 69% in fixed income or bonds, 4% in property and 27% in equities. But with 10-year gilt yields in January at 1.5%, the possibility of capital loss from holding gilts was really quite high. Having bought a 10-year gilt in January, yielding 1.5%, if five years later, five-year interest rates were 3.5%, which is not an impossible scenario, the capital loss on the gilt would be 10%. So I'm not sure this is most people's definition of cautious. Perhaps cash would be the better option at that point. So I think risk appetite needs to incorporate a view of current valuations. At Ipso Facto, we think most investors want to know what is the best asset allocation strategy for current circumstances to give them a decent chance of making a reasonable return over the long term. Our core asset allocation advice is based on current relative valuation, adjusted for risk. Investors can then be more cautious or more adventurous according to their tolerance of risk or volatility. Some interesting points there. 
Obviously, this isn't the easiest thing to do, and I imagine people do some things they regret. So, as you're going along, what common mistakes should you try to avoid? Yes, well, I think the most obvious mistake is to be too influenced by what is fashionable. What is the fashionable asset class or sector of the day, and not to pay enough attention to valuation. The Warren Buffett mantra about being fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful, is excellent advice. In other words, don't follow the herd. So one, avoid buying the market when it is relatively expensive or selling when it is cheap. Two, avoid having too many assets concentrated in too few sectors. Three, don't overtrade, but do review your investments regularly to make sure they are meeting your objectives. We are all perhaps prone to sticking our heads in the sand when things are going wrong. Sometimes doing nothing is the right answer but we need to have good reasons for inactivity. Having a disciplined investment strategy will help in this regard. So don't follow fashion. Don't have too much concentration. Don't get too attached to particular investments. When you've made a decent amount of money, take some profits. Yes, um, that's interesting what you say about discipline and buying and selling because the reader in this week's Portfolio Clinic is actually a regular saver. Um, what are the arguments for investing lump sums regularly, what some people call pound cost averaging? Quite simply, that it takes any market timing decision, which is notoriously difficult, out of the hands of the investor, and you buy more of an investment when it is cheap and less when it is expensive. It's therefore an automatic way of following the Warren Buffett advice to be greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others are greedy. Okay, and um, obviously there's a lot of different investments. Is one investment better for this than another, or can you do pound cost averaging with any kind of investment? Well, we think collective investments like investment trusts, providing deeding charges are not too high, are very well suited for this sort of approach. An added bonus is if the investment trust has a reasonable income yield, then that dividend compounds up together with your regular investment. With investment trusts, you may also get the advantage of discount volatility, meaning that the trust can be on a large discount when you're buying it, and therefore it becomes particularly cheap. Okay. Um, And are there any instances when you shouldn't pound cost average? Well, I think to work well, pound cost averaging needs to be given time. So you would probably not want to do it if your saving period was limited to a few years. But then that would apply to any sort of equity investing. You would want to avoid investments where dealing costs were high or liquidity low. So any investment where the market capitalisation or size of assets is low. Generally, pound cost averaging should work best for more volatile investments. So this would tend to favour equities over bonds. Okay. Now you said um, in terms of things to avoid, what would be one or two examples of um, investments to avoid pound cost averaging? Well, I think the the smaller capitalised uh, investment trusts, for example, where uh, you can get a big spread on the um, yeah. on on the trusts, um, and uh, I think uh, alternative investments like hedge funds, you probably wouldn't want to be doing that uh, as a pound cost averaging exercise. Yeah. Okay. Um, Now, in the reader portfolio, you also mentioned quarterly investing, um, where somebody's ISA or savings account provider has very expensive charges, making, um, you know, monthly investing, uh, I suppose, uh, 
maybe not very effective. Is investing on a quarterly basis, is it as good as, say, like monthly investing, which is maybe what a lot of people do, plan cost averaging? Yeah, I think the important thing is to invest over a long period of time. Ideally, that would be monthly, but quarterly is okay too, just as long as it's done on a on a regular basis. But the important thing is to be investing over a num- number of years. Okay. Uh, turning to uh, the budget this week, uh, Chancellor um, announced quite a lot of things uh, and covered quite a lot of ground. Now, David, for private investors, out of all the things that were said, what would you say are the most important things? Well, what may be the most significant item for savers in the long term, unfortunately, we don't know the outcome now. This relates to tax relief on pension contributions, where there is going to be a consultation. What we do know, as was foreshadowed, is that from April 2016, higher rate tax relief for additional taxpayers, those earning over £150,000, will be restricted below the current £40,000 limit, tapering away the annual allowance to a minimum of £10,000. But the Chancellor suggested that he was thinking of a much more radical shake-up of pensions taxation, in that tax relief on pension contributions might be withdrawn altogether to be replaced by an ISA-style regime where income from pension funds would be tax-free. Possibly, contributions would be chopped up by the government on some sort of means-tested basis. This would have the advantage for the Treasury in generating more tax revenue early on, but would seem to be against the general theme of encouraging savers. At this moment, everyone can get tax relief on pension contributions up to the lesser of their income or earnings in £40,000. So whilst you may need to take account of what your employer is contributing, many people might actually be able to contribute more. And for example, they could get tax relief on this amount rather than paying into an ISA. But this is an area where it's sensible to take some specialist advice. I think we need to watch this space. The, The other point we do know aside from changes to inheritance tax for family homes and some tinkering with buy-to-let, relates to the taxation of dividends. Here, there is yet more incentive to place assets into ISAs, since as whereas previously basic rate taxpayers had no more tax to pay on dividend income, now if they have more than £5,000 of dividend income, they will pay tax of 7.5% on the excess. So people should, considering consider transferring shares held in their own name or in an ordinary investment account into an ISA if they have capacity. Okay, some uh, good things to consider there. And um, we'll actually be following up on the uh, dividend tax in uh, next week's issue. Now, earlier this week, personal finance writer Kate Bailey interviewed Kenneth McKenzie, manager of Target Healthcare REIT. He told Kate why he thinks care homes are a good investment. Kenneth, what is attractive about the care home sector compared to the more wider kind of commercial property areas? I suppose the first thing that's unusual about us is that uh, our property assets uh, have 25 to 30 year leases which are not breakable. So the average length of lease for the commercial property sector is, is, I think, about seven years. And uh, we're nearly, we are four times that. We're actually slightly more than four times that. So there's, uh, you're able to have a very long view on the income characteristics uh, of the fund. And, and is that linked to inflation, that, that income? Yes. 
Um, our leases all have an RPI link. Um, in our particular case of the 29 leases that we have in place, uh, one of them is a fixed uplift and all the others are RPI linked with collars and caps. Okay. Um, and so what is attractive about the, the sector kind of more widely in terms of demographics and, you know, and kind of supply and demand? Well, the underlying fundamentals uh, are all about the baby boomer. Uh, and as you look forward for the next 20 years, the number of over 85s uh, doubles in the next 20 years. And on average, 15%, slightly more than 15% of the over 85s end up in residential care. Mm. So that's uh, that's a kind of big picture in terms of what's going to happen in the next uh, few years. So the demand is, is high. So, so demand is very significant as mm. you look forward. Um, the other aspect of it is that uh, today there are 480,000 beds in the sector, but beds with wet rooms, which we believe are really truly fit for purpose beds, are about 70 or 80,000 of these. Uh, and it's only that part of the sector that we actually invest in. So there's around about 400,000 beds which uh, don't have wet rooms uh, and uh, are less fit for purpose. Some of these need to be invested in, and then there's uh, probably 100,000 beds that needs to leave the sector. Mm. So there's a significant opportunity in the sector to, to grow a business. Okay, because I mean, that was going to be my next question, really. We we obviously have this demand, but in terms of the, the assets out there, the supply of assets that you want to invest in um, and that make kind of good parts of your portfolio, is there a good supply? You said there aren't there aren't that many with these wet yeah, rooms. There, there is a limited supply. This is not a, a, a sector where you know we could be adding thousands of beds per year. Um, across the UK, about six thousand new beds are added per year, mm-hmm. um, and we think that with the the demographic bulge that we spoke about earlier, that that needs to grow probably by fifty or sixty percent for a number of years. Um, but uh, it, there are some signs that that is beginning to happen, but uh, we're just at the beginning of that. Because, I mean, obviously there's there's a big um, disparity in the quality of care homes, I would assume, yes. um, across the UK. And um, they have received some quite bad publicity, haven't they, in recent years. We've had kind of Southern Cross and, and Orchard View. So this obviously isn't a universally appealing sector. What what exactly do you look for when you're choosing? Yes, the, the, there's a big disparity both in terms of the physical room. Um, if you built a care home 15 years ago, the room was just actually physically smaller, probably a third the size of what we are building today. Mm. Uh, there probably were not wet room facilities in these days. Uh, so there's a physical disparity in that way. And then there's the, also the whole aspect of the standard of care itself. Uh, and care ultimately is personal and individual and local, uh, we think best. And so a part of our focus is to be working with um, local companies in local regions and uh, deeply engaged in their communities and uh, rather than working in the more corporate end of the market. We actually think running care homes are just is just a difficult business. It's a highly rewarding business when done very well because ultimately the people who are cared for, if I was with an investor this morning and he was saying his mother has dementia and uh, speaking about the wonderful way in which she has blossomed with her dementia by moving into a care facility. So that's one of the things we love about it. People actually live better 
and live longer and more contentedly in these latter days of their lives. Um, but that's about uh, the employees of the care facility putting their lives into that and uh, providing a holistic uh, care. And that's a key part of what we are trying to assess at all stages. Mm. So so with that in mind, how many assets do you currently own? How many? Um, and and these, are these all care homes or? Yes, other kind we, of we exclusively there? invest in care homes and we have uh, 28 care homes in our ownership at the moment. Uh, we exchanged this week for number 29, but uh, yeah, that's okay. that's what we do. And I mean, are you aiming to, to grow that? Portfolio? Yes, yes, we are. We are on the main market of the London Stock Exchange. So we have a market capitalization of about 150 million at the moment. Uh, 150 million wouldn't be the kind of size that people would expect to be on the main market in the medium term. And it's our aspiration to grow the business as opportunity arises opportunistically and always mindful of trying to make the right kind of return to our uh, shareholders. Mm, and I mean, what are the kind of margins like on, on something like a care home versus a different kind of property asset? Is, is it kind of easy to find profitable you know, businesses here? Yes. It, it, some, a good modern purpose-built care home can often be a profitable uh, proposition, um, but it's very localised and it's very much subject to the local supply and demand and the care standards exhibited by the operator. So that's our focus continually, doing that local assessment and understanding the care home uh, within its local community, uh, giving value for money and making sure the residents are well looked after. It can be profitable, um, and uh, in many cases, it is profitable. And I mean, so is that the key risk then? What What are the key risks here for for the kind of sustainability of, of the portfolio? I think a key, one key risk is oversupply in very localised markets. Um, a further key risk is the whole ethos of the um, operator. Is he in it for short-term gain? Because there is short-term gain sometimes. Mm. Or is he in it for a long-term a holistic view of care of the community? Mm, okay, um, and so what what are we looking at in terms of income? What what's the dividend? So our um, target healthcare REIT p- um, pays a six percent dividend on the issue price anyway, um, and uh, with an RPI link, um, our share price today is one hundred and six hundred and seven. So it's probably more like five point six or five point seven or something like that on the current mm-hmm. share price, but. Uh, that that's our goal to be paying that kind of income going forward, and we're a lowly geared product. So uh, we've you mentioned the word Southern Cross earlier. Mm. We're the opposite of what Southern Cross did. Southern Cross did not own any property; mm-hmm. they were a single operator risk. Right. The investor com- invested in the post rent profit stream. Uh, our rents are all covered, paid to us first before the operator gets his profit into his own pocket. Okay, uh, and. Um, we are property backed, uh, so a fundamentally different proposition to Southern Cross. And we've tried to approach this in a very holistic, conservative way. And I believe that's one of the reasons why we've been so well supported by our shareholders. Mm, I mean, do you have a, um, a commitment to increasing the, the dividend year on year or are you just saying yes, that 6% we, year? No, we, have a, um, we speak about the dividend having an RPI link. Mm. So um, our underlying rents typically are going up 1% or 2% per annum. Mm-hmm. Uh, depending on where our pay is and uh, we're a REIT we plan to pay out what we earn 
Okay. Uh, we're um, we're not about preserving, um, you know, retaining cash within. We're we're a we're a flow. The, the whole re- model really is a flow through model, uh, most tax efficient way to, for people to invest in property. Mm. And should investors be thinking about this as um kind of increasing capital year on year as well as income, or, yes. or is this an income yes. investment? Yeah, well, it's fundamentally an income investment. So, you know, you get your 6% return, but then because rents are going up 1% or 2% a year, the NAV will go up 1% or 2% a mm. year without any yield shift. So there could be something like 7 8 9% uh, total return if there's no yield shift. So, okay. and, and if you get that compound over a longer period, that's probably as good as you're going to get anywhere. Mm. And and you say with uh, with the kind of rents going up about one or two percent, have the value of the properties in yes. your portfolio increased? Yes, by yes, and and sometimes a little more than that yeah. in the light of us buying them when they're at a less mature stage and as they come through to maturity, the value changes. Mm, because I mean, sometimes we we look at other. Uh, Almost similar REITs, things like student yes. student property REITs, mm-hmm. and you've seen the the kind of capital appreciation appreciation there just shoot up. Yes, um, is is this similar or or? No, at this stage it's not. Um, mm. Yields have changed more in some of the other sectors than they have in the care home sector. Mm. We're one of the significant buyers in the care home sector in the singles and ones and twos side of the market. Uh, and um, yields have moved more slowly in that um, than in some of the typically GCP student living, that Mm. kind of business that are buying in bigger scale, uh, and yields have moved more in in the larger scale type transactions. Okay, so the REIT is trading at quite a premium at the moment, isn't it? Yeah. Although not as high as um, some of the kind of more traditional property mm-hmm. ones where we've got real double-digit kind of mid-20s premiums. Um, I think the premium today is about 11 12%, isn't it? Yep. And how how has that changed? Because I know that's actually increased quite a bit already since March. So Yes, but we have that premium. Um, I guess people are seeing that we're uh, a stable and long-term opportunity and the NAV is underlying it is growing and, and the whole demographics of the story is growing. And, you know, each time as we've gone to the market, uh, we've been well received by the investor group. And so there's some desire for our shares, which I guess mm. is reflected mm. in that premium. We we have to kind of humbly go on in our way, doing the underlying job right. And uh, hopefully the share price will take care of itself as long as we do the underlying task properly. Mm, I mean, it's obviously a slight concern for some investors if that premium, you know, is going up and up and up. Will, will you be doing anything to kind of control that to bring it down? No, I wouldn't like to pretend that I have such authority <laughs> over the market that I would be able to do that. Um, we, um, I mean, you could sell more shares potentially, could you, to bring it down? Or? Well, our issue there is that we don't want to raise cash that's sitting in our balance sheet and not deployed because that's mm. uh, to everybody's disadvantage. Okay. So, uh, we will do more fundraising as opportunity arises in the light of our perception of future demand in the following months. Uh, and therefore, you know, there is likely to be further fundraisers as we see opportunity going forward. But uh, that's really tied to as we invest the money. OK, so so you would need to kind of have an asset in mind maybe before yes, yes. doing the fundraising. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And are you on the lookout now? Are you always on the yes, lookout? Yes, always, always on the lookout. We're always, <laughs> uh, we always have in mind when we next do fundraise and we mm. always have in mind what are the assets that we're, it, it, we're buying all the time. We're negotiating all the time. It, it, it's a pretty dynamic kind of situation. 
uh, in the light of what's happening in the in the market. Okay, have you got kind of a target size of the portfolio that you're, that you're aiming for, or is it a case of? I've been asked that question many <laughs> times, and my usual answer to it is something along the lines of: If I spend your money wisely, uh, <laughs> the chances are I'll be able to come back and get a little more from you in the future. Okay, I, I used to uh, I, in the past. I've run businesses where we cast a vision for how big we were going to be. I'm not in the mind of doing that in this. We have an opportunity to be to build a business of scale as long as we remember the knitting and do the fundamentals well. And just kind of much more broadly, but how does the the UK care home sector compare to, to the kind of international market? Obviously, you're looking very locally, aren't you? And that's that's part of your focus. But yes, how, the, how the, does there's a very interesting corollary. If you look at what happened, has happened in America where there are three very large healthcare REITs mm. a market cap of about 20 billion each and, and how long have they been going 25 years right very stable um the US healthcare REIT market is probably market cap of 80 to 100 billion wow. uh, the UK version of that is four REITs with a market cap of maybe 1 billion so there's probably a little opportunity for us to grow because we are only a sixth of the size of the population mm. but uh, but I mean, is the UK following a, the, a similar track in terms of, um, you know, the demographics and the, and the demand yes, and dynamics? Yes, yes. The, the demographics in America are very similar to our own. The way the care home stock in America is owned is very similar to our own. Uh, the REITs are are more embedded in the sector than they are currently in our sector, and that's part of our opportunity. Okay. So, but but why the focus on UK for you? Because it's fund. what we know. Okay. Um, yeah. So just finally, how, how should investors um, looking at this, how should they think about this as part of their portfolio? It's, it's income, it's capital growth. Yes, it's, it's a long-term, mm-hmm. uh, stable product which will throw off regular income on into the future with some capital growth. Okay, great. Well, thank you very much, Ken McKenzie. Thank you. Some interesting income ideas there. Kate also spoke to Evie Hambo. Manager of IC Top 100 Fund BlackRock World Mining Trust about why he still thinks investing in mining royalties is a good strategy, despite having had to write down some of his investments last year. Now, the commodities and mining sectors have been notoriously troubled in recent years and particularly affected by a slowdown in global growth and some very high profile collapses. Now, the trust had a bad year in 2014, which some have called the worst in your 21 year history. Now have declined by over 26% and share price by over 30%. And a major part of that was linked to the high-profile collapse of London Mining, which was a company hit by the Ebola crisis and by falling iron ore prices. Now that went into administration in October last year. And you were very affected by that, weren't you, because of a strategy to invest in unquoted investments and royalties. Now, what what does that mean, this strategy to invest in unquoted investments? Um, so, yeah, last year was a very difficult um, year for us. As you said, it was one of the worst in the in the trust's history. Um, we had, uh, in the prior two years, we had gone down a path of trying to reduce the discount which the trust was trading at. And one of the elements of that strategy was the um, attractiveness of income um, in the market where investment trusts that were trading with a yield of greater than 3.5% were trading on a less than a 5% discount to assets. And since inception, the trust has, apart from the kind of first month or so since it was launched in 1993, uh, had traded at a large discount to assets, you know, seventeen percent or so, um, and so the the 
with the, with the ability to close the discount to assets um, and the and the potential to pay out income and the rising income inside the trust, three and a half percent was a very you know, achievable target. In order to uh, prevent volatility in the, in the um, dividend, we had to diversify our income, and the strategy we went down was looking to buy into a royalty or a portfolio of royalties. It means that you're giving money to a company and, and they will pay you out in the future from, from their proceeds. How does it work? Uh, the royalty contract we had with uh, London Mining was linked to the um, price of iron ore because they're a producer of uh, uh, iron ore from the Marampa mine in Sierra Leone. And so as production went up and down into the future uh, and as prices went up and down, that would generate the revenue and we would get a fixed share of the revenue for that royalty contract. So it met a number of goals. First of all, it was diversity of income for us. Secondly, it was tied to commodity prices because we wanted the commodity price exposure. And thirdly, it also exposed us to the upside in the asset because the asset was a very, very long life asset. And with the further investment of capital into the asset, production was likely to grow over time. And so we made that investment um, in 2012, and the investment performed very well until we had the deterioration, as you mentioned, with regards to Ebola and the iron ore price uh, in, in the second half of 2014, uh, and obviously ended up with the company going into administration in that year. So that was a, an incredibly disappointing outcome, but the strategy itself remains a very sensible strategy. But just going back to the London mining royalty, how much did you pay for that and, and what was the impact of the write down? So when we made the investment, it was just over 5% of the trust's assets. Uh, it was a $110 million investment when we made it. Um, and that obviously got written down to zero and we received uh, just over $10 million of payments back to us. And there was a uh, bond as well, was there not? A royalty and also a bond? Yeah, so we originally, prior to making the royalty investment, we had investment in the shares of London Mining. We also had an investment in the corporate bond that London Mining had issued. When we made the investment into the royalty, we sold down our investment in the shares uh, and we maintained our investment in the bond because the bond had a very, very good yield and the prospects for the bond were you know, very encouraging. Mm. But was that bond investment not also written down? Yes. And what, how much was that written down by? Uh, that was written down to zero as well. Okay. And it's it's not the only one of these that has been written down, is it not? Wasn't the Banro Corporation? Banro wasn't written down. So in BlackRock, we have an internal pricing committee, which is independent of the investment teams. And the... Um, <clears throat> The pricing committee values anything that doesn't have a regular market quote or is unquoted. So when uh, liquidity in the Banro bond was reduced uh, in the market because it hadn't been trading, so effectively this price became stale, then they made an adjustment to that w until liquidity came back. Liquidity has come back, the price has rallied strongly, and we've gone back to market pricing. So it's just an adjustment in the value of it? It was an adjustment in the value to reflect the, the staleness or the perception that the price right. was stale in the market. Okay, I mean, But that's now been removed and gone to zero. And so, and you say that this is still, in your eyes, a, a good strategy. What What are the risks with it, as as opposed to being a shareholder in a company? What are the risks with going down this road of investing in royalties? Um, well, the uh, royalty companies generally trade at a premium in terms of valuation to ordinary mining companies because of the reduced risk profile of investing in, in a royalty itself. Because you're not exposed to the uh, you get direct exposure to the revenue that the asset generates so you get exposure to the commodity price and you get exposure to the volume uh, of the metal or the commodity that's being produced you don't get exposed to any changes in taxation you don't get exposed to you know rising operating costs you don't get exposed to how management might decide to reinvest successfully or not successfully the cash flows that the asset is producing and you don't just get exposed to the dividend that comes out after everything else has been paid for you know, either successfully or not by the management. 
Uh, and so therefore, you're, because you're exposed to the top line uh, of the financial statement of the company, um, royalties have a, a lower risk profile um, than investing in the companies themselves. Obviously, the risk that we didn't uh, build into this was the breakout of Ebola into the country, which reduced the ability of the company to be able to refinance, which was one of the things that we knew as a risk going into the investment in the first place. So, I mean, the risk is also that you just don't get any future revenue generation. If, if revenues drop, then your returns drop. Yes. Um, and, and the challenge with regards to this royalty is because of the inability to be able to attach the royalty to the mining license itself because of the mining code in Sierra Leone. If the royalty had been done in, in uh, North America, in Australia, in Canada, then you're actually able to attach that royalty to the mining license itself um, because of the, the rules in those countries. Um, and therefore, it would survive cycles of weakness in commodity prices. And when the asset comes back into production, the royalty would start paying again. Mm. But so you did change, didn't you, the strategy around royalties and quotient investments? And so what, what is the strategy now? So we haven't changed the strategy. So the desire is still to be exposed to that particular part of the kind of security base that the company would issue. What we put in, 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 into the, um, the guidelines is to work within a certain framework. So no more than 3% can be exposed to any one particular either unquoted investment um, or royalty investment at the time of investment itself. So we can't do 5% of the trust's assets into, into that. In addition, if where we have an investment both in a royalty um, or an unquoted investment, plus securities issued by that company, it may be a publicly traded bond or shares, the combined exposure can't go above 3% as well. And do you think that's the key lesson that you learned from last year? Or would you say there were other lessons? Um, I think, obviously, um, the investments, uh, the, the failure of the Marampa royalty contract, you know, some elements of the risk that was attached to that were outside of our control and impossible to be able to forecast. Uh, other uh, other elements attached to that uh, as well were other things that you know we probably didn't didn't um, uh, emphasise enough in some of it. But the main lesson that we've learned is about sizing. But what were the what were the things that you feel that you didn't emphasise enough then? Um, well, with regards to the risk factors around um, the inability to be able to refinance, which was the key part. We knew they had to refinance. There was already debt in place. There was already project finance in place. So we knew that was there. Um, we just we probably didn't pay enough attention to the timeliness of that with regards to putting it putting that refinancing in place well ahead of something that we didn't think that was going to happen, which is the outbreak of Ebola. So, yeah. It, yeah, the two things are very inextricably linked. Well, and I mean, more generally, it, mining in commodities... They've always been, uh, you know, there's no guarantee of returns there, is there, by any means. Talk us through some of the the issues in that sector over the past 10 years. It's actually been a decade of two halves. So the performance of the sector was incredibly strong from, say, 2001 right through to 2011 when the NAV of the trust peaked. Um, and then it's been it's deteriorated since 2011 to where we are today. So it's been very much one of you know, two halves. Um, obviously, the last few years have been unprecedented in terms of their nature. So we've never had four consecutive years of negative return. We've never had four consecutive years of this sector underperforming world markets. So we're very much in uncharted territory. Um, we're starting to see signs that things are improving quite significantly, and we've been trying to communicate that to our shareholders uh, over the last you know, at least 12 months. Um, so many of those signs are kind of are you know are looking like you know a, you know, a positive future. Um, however, given the recent experience, it's you have to be quite cautious in, in believing these things too early. 
Uh, so we're positioning the portfolio today um, for that, um, but we're not going in as aggressively um, as you know um, we would probably like to because of some of the uncertainties that still exist in the market, like with regards to you know, what's happening in Greece, what that means for Europe, uh, what's happening in China with regards to the instability in the stock market there. So there are many factors that are kind of holding us back from becoming a little bit more excited. And the reason why we're getting more excited is because the companies are doing a great job now. There's a lot of self-help initiatives. There's very, very strong yield support for the equities in the market today. You know, BHP, the world's largest mining company, is on a dividend yield of 7% with a strong balance sheet. You know, other examples of that are, are commonplace throughout the sector. And what, why are those yields so large? Does that not imply risk? Um, I think the the reason why the yield is large today for a lot of these companies is there are some people in the market who believe that the yield is unsustainable, and some people who believe the market the yield is sustainable, and that's the kind of that's and the. And you, you believe it is. Yeah, well, everything that the company is uh, t- saying, the, the the BHP and other companies is you know, BHP hasn't cut their dividend for a hundred years, so that's quite a long track record to mm. say they're suddenly going to be wrong on it. The balance sheet is strong; they've got lots of tools to be able to reduce operating costs. They've been incredibly successful in cutting operating costs, incredibly successful in, in in changing the focus away from reinvestment of cash flows back into growth assets to paying down debt and returning the money to shareholders. This has been in place now for several years. It's a strategy that's been re-emphasized at every opportunity by the executive team and by the board. So you're having to say, you're having to come to the assumption that everybody is wrong uh, <laughs> with regards to who runs the company, uh, and therefore the dividend yield is not going to be sustainable. And they've had every, every opportunity with regards to, in BHP's case, with the spin-out of the South 32 assets, um, to reset that, and they've chosen not to because they believe in the sustainability of that. So um, I'm giving them the, be- the benefit of the doubt, and, and I think that yield is sustainable in that specific case. So if, if you were, um, if London mining hadn't happened and you were feeling more you know aggressive what would you be doing differently so i did i didn't say that london mining had changed that i said that the the consecutiveness of four negative years in a row uh, was the big factor that had been kind of overhanging us Um, london mining is one element of that Uh, it cost the portfolio you know five to six percent or six and a bit percent uh, of, of loss in nav the much bigger fall has happened with the market rather than London mining. Okay. Um, so I think um, the uncertainties that exist around some of the bigger macro issues in the market today is what's holding us back from really emphasizing the strong signals that we're starting to see um, from the fundamentals. So you know, a number of commodities are going into deficit. Normally that's very, very supportive for commodity prices. Um, other commodities are in oversupply. Those are the ones we don't have exposure to. So we, you know, exposure to coal today, you know, is 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 de minimis in our portfolio uh, right now. Whereas in the past it would have been big positions. Platinum, you know, no exposure to platinum in the market. I'm sorry, in in the trust today, that was a huge huge bet for us many many times over the last twenty years. So and we've made a huge bet today. Exposure to copper. Um, that bet in copper that we have today is one of the biggest bets we've had for a while. It's a high conviction position for us. Mm-hmm. Lots of growth companies, well-managed, strong balance sheets, um, and the prospect of a commodity that's going into deficit and therefore potential for price increases. Copper is an interesting one, isn't it? Because I've, I think copper was kind of one of the standouts in terms of um, being a stronger performer. Um, but then it did crash in January, didn't it? And isn't copper quite connected to China and with all these concerns about a Chinese slowdown in growth, is is that a worry? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, you're always you've always got elements of concern when you're making forecasts. Otherwise, you would be, you know, it would and be it's commodities, which is, <laughs> I guess, 
always a riskier area. Uh, well, commodities in, the, in nature have a higher volatility than other areas of the equity market. So the implied volatilities in, or the historical volatilities in this sector are you know, between 25 and 30% on an annual basis, which is much higher than market volatility. So you're absolutely right if that's your definition of risk. Um, with regards to copper itself, you know, China is the world's largest consumer of copper. It's the world's largest consumer of every commodity. So there's China risk in, in every single commodity. Um, the only commodity that China isn't the largest commodity consumer today is in oil. You know, There's a China factor in everything that you're looking at with regards to the commodity space. Okay. So what what are kind of your, your biggest bets or, or the areas that you think will do well this year other than copper? Um, so copper is our, as I said, is our main bet. We've got you know around twenty percent of the portfolio exposed directly to copper investments. Um, we have other exposure to copper indirectly in companies like Rio Tinto and BHP, which are copper producers. Um, areas that I mentioned that we're underweight, we've already touched on with regards to coal, um, and that's and platinum, which are big themes for us. Um, today we have a significant position in, in gold exposure, but it's very. Uh, specific to certain companies. So we don't have exposure to some of the world's largest gold producers. Uh, we just feel that the balance sheet stresses that they're under and the inability for them to be able to cut costs in response to the lower price environment is going to cause them problems. Whereas we have you know, large overweight positions in certain gold stocks that are well financed, have high levels of growth and good operating costs and a, and a fantastic dividend culture. So again, meeting our goals to meet our dividend commitments to, be, to shareholders. Um, other areas that we think are attractive, we think that the nickel market is looking increasingly attractive, but we haven't yet made that large bet uh, for the portfolio. The zinc market has already gone into deficit, so prices are likely to be better in the future than they have been in, in the past. The challenge with uh, zinc is to be able to get enough pure play exposure to zinc uh, in the portfolio because there aren't that many pure listed zinc stocks to be able to play with that. And then there are other commodities at the fringe in the industrial mineral space, which we think are attractive as well. And the last element is silver. So although the outlook for the silver prices we think isn't that attractive, the quality of the companies and the profitability of the companies that we've chosen to invest in is, we think, pretty much world class. So the silver price today is between $15 and $16 an ounce. The companies we're invested in produce it for about 8 That's a great business. Now you've talked a bit about dividends and you did pledge to maintain the dividend at the end of the last financial year, didn't you? Um, so is there an issue with having a lower level of revenue to cover that dividend? How well placed are you there? And are you planning on maintaining the dividend again this year? Yeah, so last year, the, um, after the events of, uh, of Marampo, as we've already discussed, the board said that the final dividend of 14p would be paid out to shareholders, making 21p for, for the year, which is the third year of 21p. Uh, in a row. Um, that uh, yield has been paid and, and the shareholders received the dividend. What the board has said throughout this year is that they would look at the dividend throughout the year and see how the income um, comes into the portfolio and make a decision on the, on the dividend as the year unfolds to try and forecast what our yield would be at the start of the year when we haven't received any income at all from anybody because all we do is receive the dividends from companies that we're invested in would be a bit bold because we don't know what those companies are, are going to do. Obviously, we have a view, but to base our forecast on what companies might or might not do with regards to their dividend decisions would be relatively risky. So we haven't given any guidance um, for dividends this year. The goal um, for the trust is to be able to pay out an interim dividend and a final dividend. And I think any guidance that we would give to shareholders would obviously come with the interim dividend, which will be an August event. 
Okay. Um, and you also use derivatives, don't you, to generate a bit of extra income? Um, how does that work and, and how has that strategy been, how effective has it been? Yeah, so we don't necessarily use derivatives to generate income. We use derivatives for efficient portfolio management. Uh, one of the outputs of that is income generation. So it's not specifically just for income No, itself. but that is an offshoot of using them, is it not? Absolutely, as I, as I said. Um, so um, it does contribute in the past. depends on where you take the, where you take the returns from the, income, um, from the option writing. Sometimes you take it to capital, sometimes you take it to income. depends on the accounting treatment. So um, what we have done throughout the life of the trust is to sell volatility out to the market where we think volatility is mispriced. So as you commented earlier on, um, this sector is highly volatile. And so therefore, volatility is often overpriced into certain financial instruments. And what we have done incredibly successfully over a very, very long period of time is to opportunistically sell that volatility where we think it is mispriced into an option contract, either by selling a call option, which is covered on our existing positions. So if we feel that a certain stock has reached a level that we would be happy to sell it at or is getting close to a sell level, and we can achieve that exit and get paid extra for making a commitment to sell it at a price that we would be happy to sell it at uh, in the future, a price that doesn't yet already exist, mm. um, then that's a very sensible use of the uh, of the uh, of the capital of the trust. Likewise, in the opposite, if a, if a share is um, getting close to a level where we'd be happy to buy it, and we can we can take on a put option position, and that the the, the use of options in in as a tool there typically adds to the income mix over time if the premiums from the option writing are taken to income rather than taken to capital. And how has the first half of this year been? Because you have outperformed the benchmark, haven't you, over one and three months, I believe? Yeah, I think um, uh, I think the first half of the year ended a couple of days ago, uh, and we have outperformed over the last six months, yeah. And how are you feeling about the portfolio going forward? Uh, I think we're very happy with the portfolio. We're very pleased to have completed all of the um, work with regards to our royalty investment. Um, the Avanco royalty is likely to, uh, well, the company said that they're aiming for first production before the end of this year. It's a small investment for, for, for the trust. It's only $12 million out of our portfolio, which is obviously a, you know, it's a, it's a relatively small amount of money. What kind of percentage is that then? Uh, well, today we're about £600 million of assets, um, £700 million with about gross assets. Um, so that takes you to just over a billion dollars. So it's about one and a bit percent. How happy are you with the discount currently, which is around uh, an 8% discount? Yeah, so it's interesting. The, um, the discount has actually halved over the last few weeks. And I think there was quite a lot of speculation in the market with regards to the index inclusion and the changes around there, mm -hmm. and that there would be a lot of liquidity coming out, and the discount widened before that event happened, and that event happened, and the discount has now narrowed significantly. I think the discount is obviously um, very closely linked to the income uh, the trust is going to be able to pay back to its shareholders. As I mentioned earlier on, one of the strategies that the trust, uh, that the board went down with regards to the trust was to try and narrow that discount by um, the income potential. Um, and as the income potential has continued to grow uh, inside the portfolio, then obviously maintaining that is going to be key to be able to bring that uh, discount back into a narrow level. Prior to the events of Marampa, we we're actually trading at a premium. So it had been a very successful strategy. Okay. Um, great. I think that's probably all we have time for. So thank you very much to Evie Hambro. Great. Thank you very much. Some interesting ways to get exposure to commodities there. This brings us to the end of this week's podcast, so it just remains to thank special guest David Liddle, founder of online investment advisory service Ipso Facto Investor, Kenneth McKenzie, manager of Target Healthcare REIT, and Evie Hambo, manager of BlackRock World Mining Trust. Thanks also to personal finance writer Kate Bealey. 
You can read more about finding the right investment strategy for budget and alternative property investment trusts in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle. Thank you for listening and have a great weekend. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.